Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, June 15th, 2018. Kind of excited about the second hour today. I'll explain why in a minute. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God, to the Word of God, no shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex, as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward by, uh, for consumption by evangelicals in Christians is, well, far from biblical, far from Christian. It's like made-up stuff. False doctrine, people for teaching for shameful gain, things they ought not to teach. It's just utter pandemonium out there, cats and dogs living together. I think you get the idea. So uh, <laughs> this is a program that teaches. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way, which for some people, that's the part <laughs> that really, really irks them because, you know, we uh, we are not uh, <laughs> afraid of sarcasm. We're not afraid of humor. We're not afraid of... Pointing out the utter absurdity of so much of what is passing off as uh, Christian doctrine today. And, you know, here's the thing is, is that, you know, it's nuts. It's crazy. It's, it's just dumb. And nobody should be believing so many of the things out there. And, uh, and instead, you know, they do. And they will come after you when you show it to be the absurdity that it is. That's the strange part. So, all right. So I I said I was excited about hour number two. I I am excited about hour number one. I just wanted to say that. But hour number two, I'm kind of thinking that we're going to be able to pull this off for like the majority of the summer. At least I'm, you know, I'm kind of hoping because, you know, after listening to a few of these sermons, 
uh, by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He's on a tear, best way I could put it. And uh, he has started a, a series back in, it looks like it started technically off in April. Um, May, though, it really got going. And the name of the series is titled Earnestly Contending. Earnestly Contending. And uh, he's talking about, in these sermons, different facets of, you know, how the pattern of treachery works, uh, the, you know, the Christianity is worth fighting for, and all these kinds of things. And so uh, worth the listen. And so I'm thinking that what we might end up doing is doing a series uh, where every Friday for the foreseeable future, we'll pick some of the sermons uh, from Pastor Charmley's uh, sermon series on earnestly contending uh, and uh, and play those out because uh, you know I number one it's tough to find good sermons out there number two Pastor Charmley has literally for the uh, the lion's share of the past decade provided for the listeners of fighting for the faith and his congregation his congregation first uh, you know solid quality uh, exegetical content. And so uh, I'd love to feature Pastor Charmley here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. So uh, we will be doing that in hour number two. We're gonna, we won't be playing every one of the sermons in the series. It kind of depends on how long the thing lasts. But uh, we're going to be uh, listening to the third sermon in the series titled Worth Fighting For, Worth Fighting For. And, uh, and so we'll pick it up from there. And we'll, you know, for the foreseeable future, we'll be picking up uh, different uh, installments of this sermon series by Pastor Charmley. Now, that being said, let's talk about what we're going to do in hour number one. Okay, so we're going to begin with the uh, <clears throat> the Barbie girl herself, uh, Terry Savelle Foy. And um, her <laughs> recent video blog, <laughs> no joke, titled How to Use the Law of Attraction... For weight loss. Yeah, I'm not making that up. Not making it up at all. So have you, have you been wondering how you can use the law of attraction? Which, by the way, isn't taught in Christianity, nor is it a biblical doctrine. The, but apparently, uh, those of you like myself who are suffering from rotundiness, uh, that uh, if you're looking for you know uh, an easy solution, forget the diet pills, forget exercising, no, 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 and, and, and enough of those veggies and, you know, celery sticks and carrots. No, just use the law of attraction and you can just, you know, <clears throat> lose your rotundiness. So uh, I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. Then uh, we're going to switch gears. We're going to check in with Andrew Womack and uh, listen to kind of an extended piece that uh, he's done kind called How to Find, Follow, and Fulfill God's Will. And in this... Uh, segment, we're going to hear him claim that he's a prophet of some kind, and we'll just note the utter absurdity of the things that he's saying, and uh, and then we'll round out our number one, which means we might run this a little bit long today. We're going to be checking in with uh, Robert Morris of Gateway Church, uh, who also broadcasts on TBN, and listen to a, uh, a message from part of his uh, Frequency Sermon Series entitled, I, I'm a Prophet, I'm a Prophet, where he makes the claim that every Christian is a prophet. And uh, this one's a little bit slick. I mean, he literally is uh, using just about every Bible-twisting technique that you could possibly think of uh, in order to uh, 
in order to make it look like Scripture teaches that all Christians are prophets. And no, they are not. And this is duplicitous on his part. So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground to cover. And since we're going to begin with the Terry Savelle Foy update, let's do this. Hiya, Bobby. Hi, Ken. You want to go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. I'm a Bobby girl in the Bobby world. Life in plastic, it's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Imagination, life is your creation. Come on, Barbie, let's go party. I'm a Bobby That's right. It's the Barbie girl herself, Terry Savelle Foy. Let's head over to her YouTube channel as she explains to us how we can use the law of attraction, which is not part of the law of God, uh, uh, so that we could uh, lose weight. Here we go. Hey, I'm Terry Savelle Foy, your cheerleader of dreams. Hey, I pray that as you invest in yourself today, you're captivated and you're catapulted to live your dreams. In fact, if you've never... Right, yeah, because Christianity is all about living your dreams. You know, it's not. Christ said to, like, take up your cross and follow him and that we should expect suffering and persecution and stuff like that. That's what he said. And, uh, and apparently Christianity is now about following your dreams and living your dreams and stuff. Subscribe <sighs> to this podcast. Just push the little red button right there to get consistent teaching tools and tips to help you live your dreams. Today, I want to talk to you about how to use the law of attraction for weight loss. Yeah, by the way, the law of attraction is not found in the Torah. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's more akin to like Buddhist thinking. It's more like witchcraft. Um, okay. Law of attraction for weight loss. You know, this podcast is specifically on the weight loss issue, but honestly, it can be applied to whatever battle you're facing. Right. Finances, health, you, you name it. Relationship issues. You could use the law of attraction for that. Yeah. Fighting a financial battle, a legal battle, a health battle, a marital battle, whatever. Right. I mean, if you're in a legal battle, I mean, have you considered using... The law of attraction for solving your legal battle problems. The law of attraction is simply expressing gratitude for what you want. Gratitude is the key. You know, the law of attraction. What? <laughs> so the law of attraction is just, just express gratitude for the thing that you want. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am so skinny. I thank you that I am no longer suffering from rotundiness. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And then, voila, you know, it's <laughs> no treadmill time needed for you. Th this is absurd. And basically states that whatever gets in your mind and stays there, you will attract it in your life. That your mind is like a magnet. All right. Now, I'm going to back this up just a smooch. And we're just going to ask an important question. Which biblical text teaches this doctrine that, you know, whatever gets stuck in your mind is what is attracted to you? 
the key. You know, the law of attraction basically states that whatever gets in your mind and stays there, you will attract it in your life. That your mind is like a magnet. Now, is this in like fourth hesitations? Um, <laughs> did you find this in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas? Where did you find this law of attraction? Law of attraction. Well, as believers, we call it Proverbs 23, 7. Whatever a man thinks in his heart, so does he become. Now, we gotta, we gotta do some biblical work here. If you have a Bible, you can open it. If not, you just follow along. So we're gonna head over to Proverbs, what did she say? 23, 7. Now, let me, let me help you out here. We're going to pull this up in the King James Version, which is what she is quoting. And we're going to note the three rules for sound biblical. The three three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. And oh boy, is that text small? Every time I change copies, uh, you know, translations, it gets really small. And so here, here it is out of context. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. See, there it is. The Bible teaches the law. Of a track. No, no. I mean, this is so duplicitous, it's ridiculous. In fact, really easy to debunk using the three rules. Now, and we can do this of <laughs> we can do this in the King James, but I'll show you it in the ESV as well. Here's what it says just by adding one, one verse before <laughs> Proverbs 23:7. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil lie. Mm-hmm. Neither desire his dainty meats, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee. I sound like a Shakespearean guy. Anyway, <clears throat> eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. I, I'm going to be uh, performing in the Globe Theater uh, next week in London. Anyway, so you, you kind of get the idea. Well, what does it mean, the guy who has an evil eye? This is an ancient uh, euphemism or you know, you, yeah, it's phrase talking about somebody who is stingy or jealous or you know things of that nature. So let's take a look at like the ESV. The ESV has is a modern translation. And here's what it says in the ESV. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating, which is a good way of translating the phrase there in the Hebrew. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Now, see, there you go. As soon as you put it into context, you realize, whoa, wait a second. Proverbs 23, 7 doesn't teach the law of attraction, you know, that as I thinketh in my heart, so am I, you know. So I I imagine myself um, 32-inch waist, six-pack abs, really big biceps, and, you know, and all this kind of nonsense. And then, bloosh, you know, it, it just happens. Yeah, no, no, it, does, it doesn't work that way. And the, the sad thing is, just put the text in context, and it cleans itself right up, and you realize, whoa, these people out here who are teaching that Proverbs 23, 7 says, whatever I think in my heart, I can have. 
they are lying to me. And the reason you would feel that is because, well, they are lying to you. They are deceiving you. They are scratching your itching ears and telling you what you want to hear. The Bible does not teach the law of attraction. But uh, <clears throat> let's continue with Terry Savelle Foy here. In other words, what you think about, you bring about. Mm. Well, here's the thing. God will go to work to fight your battles, but you have to express gratitude, praise, and thanksgiving. Oh, I see. So God is going to fight my battles for me, but he's kind of like a mercenary. Yeah, so there's God, you know, me, I can fight your battles for you, mm, me, God, right? And you go, oh, that's so good. That's great news, God. I'm, I'm, I got to fight the battle of the bulge. I'm suffering from rotundiness. Please, God, come to my rescue. Fight my battle for me. No, no, me, no fight. You must praise me first. <laughs> this is nonsense. <laughs> just, so God's the mercenary battle fighter, and as soon as you give him praise and stuff, then he goes, okay, me, I, I go ahead, and I'm going to fight for you now. This is nonsense. Give you proof. I'll tell you about my weight loss issue, but let me just give you... <laughs> so to prove it, she's going to talk about her weight loss issue. In order to prove this, you actually need a biblical text. You need passages that clearly say these things, not something like half of a sentence taken out of context from Proverbs 23. Proof about what I'm sharing today. You know, we see the story of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles. If you remember the story, armies are coming against Jehoshaphat. He was completely outnumbered, and it looked hopeless. There was no way he could win this battle. So what does he do? Well, the Bible says he sent the praisers out ahead of him. They were bowing down and praising God, expressing gratitude for how powerful and mighty he is. Okay, so here's kind of the issue. And uh, let me explain it this way. Number one, Second Chronicles is a historical narrative. And so you oftentimes people do these weird things with historical narratives. They take a historical narrative and they take a descriptive text, which is what's going on here. This is describing a battle that Jehoshaphat ended up fighting. And, and so now you've turned this into a prescription. And that's kind of the problem. See, it, this is not an example of Jehoshaphat going, oh, as I think of in my heart, so am I. So, and I know God is going to fight my battles if I praise him first. See, the Bible is just, I mean, look at the Old Testament. Lots and lots and lots of battles were fought without the praise band. Uh, And they were won. (laughs) You know, David won a lot of them without a praise band. And so so what's descriptive here is not a prescription for us. That's This is another type of twisting of Scripture. So she's ripped a verse out of context, and now she's looking for another story to kind of force this into this thing that she's teaching, the law of attraction, which the Bible doesn't teach. And the story of the battle of uh, Jehoshaphat's not a story about that at all. Now, the other thing is, is Jehoshaphat, as one of the kings in uh, the land of Israel, uh, he is in covenant relationship with God. And as a result of that, there are covenant promises. And so he's invoking those and utilizing those and taking God up on his promises to protect the land of Israel, protect the uh, the Jews of Judea, you know, things like that. So um, 
she's totally ignoring the bigger context here, but okay. And their praise confused the enemy. Mm. See, the enemy doesn't know what to do. Yeah, many praise bands confuse me also. <laughs> That's a different story, different episode of Fighting for the Faith. Sorry. When it does not appear that your breakthrough is ever going to happen no. and you just start praising and thanking God, yes. it sounds crazy. I thank you, God, that I'm so skinny. Oh, Jesus, thank you for making me thin. And, uh, yeah. The <laughs> I cannot believe that people believe this. Bible says the enemies actually turned against each other <laughs> and slaughtered themselves. Yeah. Well, listen to what Jehoshaphat did. That, that must have been how bad the praise was. Okay. They, I can't stand this. I'm going to kill myself. The solution. He said, Lord, I don't know what to do. And even if I did, I don't have the strength to do it. But my eyes are on you. Mm. And he just began praising and worshiping God. And he Right. Said, Trusting God for deliverance because God had actually promised that to those who kept covenant with him in the time of the Old Testament. Hello? Oh, yeah. And the armies are coming against me. Well, listen to what the Lord said. He said to him, the battle is the Lord's. The victory is yours. And he won the battle. Now, think about it. Jehoshaphat's position was... Don't worry about it. Just keep my eyes on God. Now get this ingrained. When you complain, no matter what it is, when you complain, you remain. When you praise, you make progress. What? Now let me... See, that's my problem. The reason I've been suffering from rotundiness for most of my adult life is because I keep complaining about it. <laughs> no <laughs> biblical text teaches this okay i i'm literally going to explode um how much more <laughs> this can i endure hang on explain how i discovered personally that one of the ways that we maintain our less than desired bodies is through the words of our mouths no now, complaining and i thought it was by putting food into my mouth who knew it was what was coming out of my mouth my words <laughs> this is crazy making focusing on the negative things that we hate about ourselves, it causes us to remain that way. When we're saying things like, I hate my thighs, my stomach is huge, I'll never get this weight off, no matter what I do, I can't lose weight, this cellulite is disgusting. <laughs> well, what we focus on expands. Now... <laughs> okay. I can be blunt. Not only is this not Christian doctrine, I'm pretty sure this is bad psychology as well. I mean, it's, this doesn't even rise to the level of pop, pop psychology. This is like new age, nonsensical psychology. I mean, and notice that she's got uh, just such a simple solution for what many people turns out to be a complex problem. Some people legitimately have slow metabolisms. And get, kicking their metabolisms into a higher gear becomes more difficult as age sets in. Oftentimes, people have sitting jobs or things like that, or they have you know other medical conditions to, that they have to consider or high stress levels. And so she has just basically put all of these you know complex reasons why different people suffer from rotundiness and boiled it down to a super simple thing well it's just because you're complaining too much nonsense and no biblical text teaches this that she's teaching 
This woman is exploiting people with overly simplified explanations to the problem, false doctrine, Bible twisting, and of course, you know, she travels the world because she's she's the coach cheerleader for helping people achieve their dreams. Yeah, um, buyer beware is the best way I could put it. Um, if you're looking to lose weight, the last person you should go to for helping you with that is Terry Savelle Foy. Moving along... Get up right now. That's right. That's uh, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. Time for a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. We're heading over to the studios of Andrew Womack. And uh, he has recently done a series on how to find and fulfill and follow God's will. Now, if, if we put this in the form of a question, how do I find, fulfill, and follow God's will? Answer. At least the answer that the Bible gives is actually quite simple. It's not complicated. And it's found in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read it out for you. It it says this. uh, Paul, writing to young pastor Timothy, says, uh, But as for you, continue what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, and the Greek word is graphe, that means writing, it's the written Scripture. It is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Christians are created in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 2.10, for good works. This is God's will that we do good works. What is a good work then? Answer, you read the scriptures. You're going to look at your life in light of the Ten Commandments, and you're going to note that the Ten Commandments are a compass for good works. They do not specify and say, God wants you to go next door and talk to your neighbor and find out if she needs you to make dinner for her tonight. No, that's not it at all. If your neighbor is in need, then you meet their needs. That's the idea. Good works are defined in our vocations as husband, wife, father, and mother, um, child, 
employer-employee. In fact, even slaves do good works when they do their work as unto the Lord. This is what Scripture teaches. And so, you know, what happens, though, in uh, much of American evangelicalism, as well as in the charismatic movement, they put a very heavy burden on people by basically telling them that God has created them for a specific and unique purpose. There's a destiny that you're supposed to hear from God and then go and fulfill. And if you don't do it, then you've really missed it. And it's very, very dangerous uh, because it puts a very heavy burden on people uh, and teaches them that somehow they're supposed to learn how to hear the direct voice of God in order to figure out what their their, your, their unique purpose is. And we're going to hear some uh, Andrew Womack say some things that are disturbing to say the least. And we're going to go a little bit long in uh, in his statements because uh, by the end of it, we're going to hear him talking about how he himself was called to be a prophet in exactly the same way with the same words that Jeremiah was. Yeah, this is a guy who's full of himself and is utterly delusional. But uh, the false doctrine that we hear at the front is extremely devastating because it is not the biblical teaching regarding the good works that God has called us to do as Christians. So here's Andrew Womack. I'm in a continuous series that I started yesterday talking about how to find, follow, and fulfill God's will. Yeah, by the way, he's happened to have coincidentally written a book how to find, follow, and fulfill God's will, okay? This is so powerful. This is the thing that just jump-started my life with God. I got born again. You know, I got to ask the question, if this is a biblical teaching, then why did we need Andrew Womack's book to teach us this? If this is what Christians are supposed to be doing, wouldn't we find this in Scripture? I was eight, but when I was 18, I had been seeking the Lord for maybe a year to a year and a half about what his purpose for my life was. And when I did that, when I had an encounter with God, and that's just what lit a fire under me. And for over 50... Yeah, see, this is true because he's had an encounter with God, which, by the way, this is a major part of the charismatic and NAR and five-folder narrative. You must believe me, despite the fact that what I'm saying isn't actually taught in the Scripture. You must believe me because I have had a specific, unique, and individual encounter with God. I have been called to be a prophet, therefore what I am telling you is true. And unfortunately, within the charismatic movement, um, that's pretty much all that's necessary. is somebody to claim to have had an experience, claim to have had an encounter, and they never get challenged. In fact, the people who challenge them are the ones who get rebuked rather than somebody like this. And so right off the bat, the whole purpose of him telling us that he's had this encounter is because he's putting himself and the words coming out of his mouth on the same level as the Bible. Don't believe me? By the time we're done, you will have absolutely no doubt that that's exactly what he's doing here. Years now, man, I have been pursuing God because I started finding out what his will is. I tell you, this is first base for those of you that are familiar with American 
baseball. You, you can't go anywhere until you get to first base. You, this is the beginning place. This is foundational. If you don't even know what God's will is, there is zero chance that you are going to fulfill it accidentally. <clears throat> well, correct. Uh, but I find God's will for me as a Christian clearly laid out in the pages of Scripture. Mm-hmm. It's there in black and white. I don't even have to guess. All I got to do is read. And it is so clear what God's will for us is as Christian is serving each other in love, in good works. That's what God's will is. And clear, unambiguous passages say that. But see, he's not referring to that. He's basically putting a heavy burden on you, saying, you've got to find out this specific will of God for you. You've got to discover, and you're not going to fulfill this accidentally, so I'm going to teach you what this is. And note that if you buy into this, there is an anxiety that goes along with this teaching that, oh, I don't want to be one of those people that doesn't fulfill God's will. What do I got to do, Andrew? How do I get that book of yours? And so I, I talked about this yesterday. Let me just mention again that what this is, it's actually a combination of three different teachings. I've got mm-hmm. a, a, a five-part series here on how to find God's will. Then I've got a five-part series on how to f- uh, follow God's will. And then a five-part series on how to fulfill God's will. And for many years, I taught these things separately. And then eventually I combined them into this one book. And we have a package deal here And there is so much material here that if I was to just teach through everything that I have in all of this material, it would take me over six months on television. I'm going to condense this down to about four or five, maybe a maximum of six weeks instead of six months. And so I really encourage you to please get the entire albums, the materials that we're all... Yeah, I encourage you, you know, read Ephesians, probably one of the most foundational texts. I mean, Ephesians begins in talking about the gospel, explaining how we are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, and that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And then you get to the back part of the epistle, and it lays it out so beautifully. Or you can read, if you want a a longer treatment, read the book of Romans. Again, Romans begins with foundational doctrines, salvation by grace through faith alone, that we are not justified by our works. We are justified by grace, by what Christ has done. And then by the time you get to chapter 12, you get a a wonderful summary of the good works that we're called to as Christians. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty clear in Scripture what God's will is for us. And if you got a Bible, you can find that out pretty quick. Because it will go into more detail than what I will have time to do here on television. Yesterday, I started sharing out of Psalms 139, and I read it in the King James. I tried to get to the NIV, but my phone went off, and uh, I couldn't get it back on. So let me just go back and read this. All right, I'm going to pause right there. We're going to go into our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, 
more of Andrew Womack, and then we'll uh, finish out hour number one with Robert Morris. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> everyone, I'm back! <laughs> Rex Quando here, and now we're going to have a revised intro brought to you by your very own Rex Quando. Ding! Listen up. It's time for your training to begin. Um, Mr. Quando, sir? Please refrain from asking any questions until the instruction is concluded. <clears throat> Today's lessons include two separate training courses. The first being how to walk on water. And the second, how to walk through walls. This curriculum is from Bethel Church, so it was obviously very expensive. Hence the $400 surcharge. I, I mean seed offering. <laughs> that all nine of you so generously provided. Uh, the brochure I received said something about breaking both my legs if I didn't pay. That must have been a minor clerical error. Anyway, if all of you would kindly follow me, we can begin the first lesson. Gentlemen, what you see before you is an Olympic-sized pool that will provide the perfect training ground for your first lesson. I absolutely forbid any recording of these lessons for copyright reasons. <laughs> we also can't have this highly sensitive information falling into the wrong hands, understand? First things first, in order to successfully walk across the pool, you must build up your faith inside yourself and believe just hard enough. Can you give us a demonstration? What did I tell you about questions? I can't show you today because I did it for a class yesterday. It's kind of a once-a-week type of deal. You, you can't overuse things like this. For the purposes of today's lesson, I've added a little extra motivation. <laughs> if you look very carefully across the pool, you will see a tank filled with piranhas. With a simple pull of this cord... The piranhas have now been released into the pool. For our first victim, I mean volunteer, I choose Motormouth over there to be our first demonstrator. Oh, jeez. Now, just step up to the edge. That's it. Now, build up your faith inside yourself and believe. Believe. Do you feel like you're believing enough? I, uh, think so. Good. Now go. See, you weren't believing hard enough. Believe harder. 
harder. Oh, you're hopeless. Okay, who's next? Approximately two hours later. Okay, you lot are clearly not getting the hanging. Time to move on to lesson two. Why does it smell so terrible in here? Okay, boys, welcome to lesson number two. Walking through walls. Your task is to build up enough faith within yourself. Run directly at the wall in front of you and pass through. To give you the proper motivation, I've made things slightly more interesting by locking you all inside of that trash compactor. Trash compactor? I have complete faith in you, men. Good luck. And they had such potential. Oh, wow, is that the time? I'm almost late for my next class. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey, you. Yeah, you, listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck, because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra pirate Christian media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the law of attraction won't help you lose weight and that it's not actually taught in the Bible, because it's not. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our 
three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner after that, $49.95 a month. And then lastly, Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to become a patron, just click on the Become a Patron button. It'll take you over to Patreon. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, click on the Donate button. And of course, if you'd like to do it the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's uh, return to the uh, studios of Andrew Womack. And uh, as we listen to him explaining to us how to find, fulfill, and follow God's will and clearly thinking that somehow we could totally miss it. And he's not talking about you know, by not understanding what Scripture says. He's talking about something really different. Of course, he's got a really, really, really long and expensive curriculum that he's put together to help you find, follow, and fulfill God's will. And it doesn't include, like, the free thing, you know, <clears throat> reading the Bible. Psalms 139, verses 14 through 17 says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Yep. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. And there's much that I could say, but yesterday I was focusing on this, that before we were even born... God had ordained and written His will for our life out in His book. This means that the 60 million plus children that have been aborted in just the United States alone, not counting all around the world, God had a plan for every one of them. Before they were even born, God had written this in His book. You mean that God didn't foresee that they would be murdered in their mother's wombs? That's not what Psalm 139 says. So we got a problem. I mean, either God is sovereign and he knows all things <laughs> or he doesn't. So there's God up in heaven, you know, just sitting there going, okay, all right. So there's there's little Jane Doe. And, oh, man, I, I've got, have I got plans for her? And, and then her mom sinfully, selfishly aborts her, and God goes, whoa, 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 I did not see that coming. <laughs> that one totally took me by surprise. Yeah, I, I don't think so, Andrew. Yeah, th this is kind of um, a weird theology on its face. This is important that you understand that you aren't just you know, something that happened, whether your parents knew you were coming or not, God... Yeah, I understand that. That's true, okay? It is absolutely true that I'm not an accident, and God knew I was coming. God knows how long my life will last. I have no idea how long it'll be. ...had a plan for you and had written your days out in his book. And it... Now, notice what he said there. And he had a plan for you and written these things out for you. 
So somehow, basically what Andrew was saying is something that uh, Psalm 139 doesn't say. And that is, is that we can thwart God's plan for our lives. And, and that, uh, and you know, that God somehow didn't see, uh, you know, he had all these things. But um, let me let me read this out, uh, and you know we'll just take a look because he's engaging in a form of Bible twisting known as eisegesis. Yeah, I know, I know it's not spelled I C E like ice; it's E I S, which is the Greek word into. So eisegesis is reading something into the biblical text that isn't there. He's not exegeting, which means to read out what's in the text. X meaning out, E X. So uh, he's engaging in eisegesis. So uh, Psalm 139, 14, I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So the text is saying that the days that were formed for us were written in the book prior. Now, your cross-reference on this is going to be Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll start at verse 8 because, you know, I want to get a little bit of the context. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, plural. Uh-huh. It doesn't say a purpose, singular. It says good works, plural, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk or conduct our lives in them. So I think you get the idea. So neither text is saying that there's some plan that God had and that somehow you can miss it. Andrew Womack is literally inserting that into the text, and it's not there. It wasn't a plan of failure. It wasn't a plan of sickness. It wasn't a plan of poverty, broken relationships, hurt, and pain. That was not part of God's plan. God has a plan for you, but you have to choose to pursue it. No text says that God has a plan that I must choose to pursue. That is a straight-up man-made doctrine. No biblical text says it. And I'm saying this in love, but brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that so many of you are hurting and that your life is in such a mess is because you have done it your way. You have done yeah, That's called sin, by the way. That's called sin. Your own thing, and you have not been following God's plan for your life. There is a blessing. And again, he, when he's talking about following God's plan for your life, he's not talking about anything specifically written in Scripture. He's actually talking about a bona fide secret destiny purpose thingy, a unique thing for which God created you. But again, notice Ephesians 2, verse 10, says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, not for a purpose, singular, but for good works, plural. And that requires you to understand the Ten Commandments. That's going to require you to understand the back end of the epistles in the New Testament because God's will for you is clearly laid out there. That's not what he's talking about. So what he's talking about, you know, if, if I can give you an example, it would be like God before the foundations of the earth decided that you would be a Nobel Peace Prize winning 
physician and that you would find the cure for eczema or something like that, you know, and, and, and this, you know, and you were going to change the world. And so God, oh yeah, there's this part. I've uniquely made them for this. Here's their destiny that I have for them. And then you missed it. You totally missed it. Again, no biblical text teaches this at all. This is a man-made doctrine and one that has only recently made an appearance in human history and Christian history. None of the church fathers believed this doctrine. None of the church fathers taught it. None of the apostles taught it. None of the Old Testament prophets taught this either. It's not a biblical teaching. It's an anointing. There is a sweet spot in your life when you are doing what God calls you to do that you will never experience doing your own thing and trying to get God to bless it. You know, I know that there's people that don't really... Doing your own thing and trying to get God to bless it. Again, where in the Bible does it talk this way? Nowhere. Nowhere. A relationship with the Lord that will watch this program. But the majority of people watching this program are people that have been born again. You do have some type of relationship with the Lord. But I would say that the vast majority, well over 50% of people who are Christians, who are born again, who love God, if they were to die, they would go to heaven. All right, so a vast majority of Christians, they're dying and going to heaven, but they haven't fulfilled their... Their specific, specific and unique will that God had for them. Again, this is a totally man-made doctrine. I believe that the vast majority of those people still are basically doing their own thing. And they may hope that it's pleasing to God. They may want to do... Yeah, I know that when I serve my neighbor in love, in the vocations God has put me in, I am pleasing God. Scripture says so. And I don't even have to question it. So when my kids were little and I helped by changing the diapers and you know helping my wife, giving her you know some time so that she can take care of herself, or and loving my wife, being faithful to her in our marriage, all of these things are pleasing to God. I know this because Scripture says so. Paying my taxes is another good work. And I know that I'm pleasing God when I write that check every year in April and send it to the U.S. federal government. I know that that's a good work and it is pleasing to God. And, you know, teaching my children the Bible, teaching my grandson the Bible, you know, preaching faithfully and rightly handling God's word. These are all good works. I know this because scripture says so. I don't have to guess. So again, notice here that Andrew Womack's going to teach you how to find what your unique will of God is for your life, and 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 so that you don't get to heaven and are shocked. You're going, oh, I had no idea I was supposed to do that. Something that's a blessing to other people, but they are just following their own own understanding. Them and Frank Sinatra, they're doing it their way. That is not the way to do it. God has a plan for you. And, it was- and how do you know that this is true, Andrew? Because you're not really pointing to a biblical text and rightly exegeting it. In, in literally just a minute, we're going to hear him talk about th- that, uh, well, he, he himself has been called as a prophet, the same as Jeremiah. Written out before you were ever born. Let me share another passage with you out of Jeremiah chapter 1. And I remember where I was. I was in the Kingsley Place Apartments in Dallas, Texas. Right. right. He remembers when he received his unique calling into the prophetic office, just like Jeremiah. 
after Jamie and I had first got married, when God spoke these scriptures directly to me, God appeared in my room and I had an experience with God. And this is one of the major turning points in my life. And the Lord said this to Jeremiah, but he spoke it directly to me. And these same truths apply to you, whoever you are. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God spoke that to Jeremiah. But I can tell you this isn't limited to Jeremiah because in January of 1973 in Dallas, Texas, God spoke this to me. It wasn't in an audible voice, but I was in the presence of God. For hours, I just laid there saying, God, what do you want? What is happening? God was in that room and God spoke this to me. And when he spoke it to me, just like uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah said in verse six, said, then said, I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a child. That's exactly the way I felt. I won't go into all of my testimony, but I was a total introvert. I couldn't speak in front of people. I'd already had this miraculous encounter with the Lord on March the 23rd, 1968. God had touched my life and I had committed my life to him to do whatever he wanted me to do. But I wasn't totally sure what it was. I knew I was going to be serving God full time doing something. If it was being a janitor, I was going to do it to the glory of God. I'd already crossed some hurdles, but I still didn't know what direction to go in. I had tried to minister and it was just pitiful. You know, there's a lot of people who think my ministry is still pitiful. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it because, again, notice how heavily this teaching of his relies on his claim that he himself had the same experience as Jeremiah the prophet and that he himself is called to be a prophet. That's how he knows with certainty because, I mean, this, this, this revelation of learning his unique will has changed his life, and he's a prophet. So it's got to be true, right? Again, if this is true, then why haven't Christians believed this teaching for the entire history of Christianity until very recently? And why is it being put forward by men who claim to have received direct revelation and called to be prophets like Andrew Womack has. The answer is actually quite simple, because this is not what the Bible teaches regarding the good works that we are called in Christ Jesus to do. This is a different doctrine altogether. And of course, Andrew Womack is all too eager to sell you the, the, the multi-week, multi-month-long, in-depth study material that he's put together to help you find your specific and unique will for God for your life. Uh, but you you can't find this on your own just by reading the scriptures. Hmm. Yeah, this man's a false prophet, and he is teaching for shameful gain things that he ought not to teach. And he's deluded if he really thinks he is called like Jeremiah to be a prophet because the fact that he's twisting God's word here and engaging in eisegesis while claiming at the same time to be able to hear the direct voice of God proves beyond a shadow of a doubt he's a false prophet not a true one. Moving along, and boy, I got to tell you, I've been trying to think what would be the right music for uh, an update with um, Robert Morris, and uh, here's what we're going to settle on today. 
Ray, what do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. All right, we're heading over to uh, TVN and uh, a, a broadcast of, well, Robert Morris's sermons. And we're going to be listening to the, literally the opening to this sermon and then the message that claims that every Christian is a prophet. And we're going to show you, kind of demonstrate how he's twisting God's word because this is a particular kind of twist. And what I mean by that is he is literally trying to convince people, and no one's challenging him, that to believe something that is exactly the opposite of what Scripture clearly teaches. Yeah, Scripture explicitly teaches that not all are prophets. Robert Morris is going the exact opposite direction and saying all Christians are prophets. And he's using several different Bible-twisting techniques in order to make it look like that this is the case. So without any further ado, here is uh, Frequency, I'm a Prophet. Turn to two passages of Scripture, and if you only want to do one, you can choose one. Either one's fine with me. Numbers 11 or 1 Corinthians 14. All right, let's go ahead and get our Bible opened, and uh, we will go to 1 Corinthians and we're going to go to th- uh, 12 through 14. 12 through 14. There's a reason for that, because this, First uh, Corinthians 12 uh, through 14 is like the clear, clearest set of passages as it relates to the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. That being the case, it's going to be important that we get some context. You know, three rules for sound biblical exegesis, context, context, context. Get some context uh, before we take a look at what Robert Moore says, and then we'll pull up the Hebrew Bible, and we will go to Numbers chapter 11. And we're going to note, Numbers 11 is a historical narrative. Now, one of the rules for sound biblical exegesis is you don't take a descriptive text and turn it into a prescription. But uh, he's going to be engaging in some really slick twisting of Scripture here. But uh, let's come back to Robert Morris. We've got them all queued up, and let's let him spin this out for just a little bit. want to uh, put a marker. We'll start at Numbers 11, and then we'll get over to 1 Corinthians 14 in a moment. And again, the title of the series is Frequency, Tune In, Hear God, and The title of the message this week is, I'm a prophet. By the way, this is nonsense. The analogy itself is nonsense. Tune in and hear God. 
And the basic assumption here is that God's out there broadcasting, you know, into the ether. And uh, and it's up to us to tune in to hear him. And so basically God's got some kind of spiritual radio station going, and he wants to talk to you. But you've got to learn how to, well, tune in. The, it, this is absurd, number one. This is a modern analogy that wouldn't make sense back in the ancient world. The scripture doesn't even have anything remotely approaching the ancient equivalent to it at all. And um, not only that, the the major premise of this whole thing turns God into some, well, a being that's less than all-powerful. You know, it, it assumes that God is capable of communicating and not being heard. So there's God talking to you. Hello, I'm trying to get your attention. Hello, this is the Holy Spirit. Hello, can you hear me? And And there you are just walking along, you know, and you can't hear him. That's nuts. If God's going to talk to you, oh, you you better believe. When God speaks, you will be listening. And so, I mean, the whole premise of this is nonsense. I'm going to show you the scripture in a moment that you can all prophesy. Mm. And that's what the Bible says. So, let- No, actually it doesn't. Now, it's time for us to do a little bit of work here. Uh, and we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to note the flow of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 12. There are varieties of gifts, starting in verse 4. Varieties of gifts and the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge. According to the same Spirit to another, faith by the same Spirit to another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit to another, working of miracles to another, prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another, interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So you're going to note here, the whole argument is is that God gives different gifts, not the same gift. And here's the reason why. Verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So you get the gist of it, okay? So verse 27 then, continuing the same idea. Now you are the body of Christ. Individually, you're members of it. God has apportioned in the church first apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. And then he asks these questions. And I'll make the Greek a little bit bigger here on the other side. And let me pull this up then so that you can see it. So here are a bunch of questions. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Now, obviously, from the context itself, 
you'd be able to say the whole point that Paul's making is that we all receive different gifts so that we are different body parts and together we are the body of Christ. That's the point, right? So he then asks these questions. Now in the Greek, there let me let me give you the first uh, one right here. Uh, the first question is me pontes apo- uh, 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 sorry, that's the second one. Me pontes apostoloi. Me pontes apostoloi. The me here, the, which leads off the question, m you know, mu uh, eta. It literally, when that that's an untranslated particle, which means the question that's being asked must be answered in the negative. Negative. So it asks the question, may Pontes apostolate, are all apostles? The answer is no. We know definitively that it's no because the, uh, the, the particle may appears there. Next, may Pontes prophetai, are all prophets? Answer, no. Are all, may Pontes didascule, are all teachers? No. May pontes dunamis, do all work, you know, miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? No. So scripture explicitly says not all are prophets. That is undeniable. That is the explicit, clear teaching of, of, of scripture. So here's the idea. When it comes to making a doctrine, you need a clear text. And the other thing is, is you don't want to make the Bible contradict itself. So clearest texts always govern. After that, you know, unclear texts are governed by the clear texts. So notice that uh, Robert Morris here isn't going into 1 Corinthians 12, and he's avoiding this passage like the plague. We're in a weird place to begin with, like Numbers 11. Really? We're going to be in Numbers 11. Okay, and then he said 1 Corinthians 14, but wait till you see what he does with 1 Corinthians 14. It is so bad and so egregious of a twisting of 1 Corinthians 14 that by the time you're done, the only conclusion that you can come up with is that he intentionally, and I mean this, twisted 1 Corinthians 14 on purpose in order to make it look like it says the exact opposite of what uh, what Paul says there. So, I mean, that's that's coming up. But all right, so now we've looked at the clear passage, and this Bible's clear. Not all are prophets. He just said that we all are prophets. Let me back it up just a little bit, because I think that will help us, and uh, we'll see what he says again. Can all prophesy? No. And no. that's what the Bible says. No, it's not. So let's go back here. Numbers chapter 11. This is right after... Moses said to God, uh, the prayer, what I call the prayer of every burned out pastor, if you love me, kill me. That's why it was his prayer. <laughs> and God said, you need help. You need some elders. So this is the first time we have elders coming into play in the congregation of Israel. And so that happens. And then here's what he says. Numbers 11, verse 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. That was to set in elders. And he gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him. Again, just want you to notice God speaks to people. It's all through scripture. And God, again, is the subject of this sentence, took of the spirit that was upon him, Moses, and placed the same upon the 70 elders. By the way, that's when you have problems in the church is when an elder has a different spirit. 
than the pastor. That's a problem. But God came and put the same spirit on the elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. Now, I want you, it's very important when the spirit rested, the word rested on them, they prophesied, although they never did so again. So we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And they had a brother named Yodad. I just could not resist. So, okay. And the spirit rested upon them. That's the two in the, in the camp. Now they were among those listed. They were among the 70, but who had not gone out to the tabernacle yet they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. So Joshua says, forbid them to prophesy. Then Moses said, are you zealous for my sake? Now watch this statement. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Okay, three, three points about us being prophets. Here's- yeah, now, so the way he's setting this up. Okay, so the important words were Moses said, oh, that all were prophets. And so this is now the setup. So this is the desire of Moses. This is the burning prayer inside of his heart. And apparently God's going to fulfill this prayer in the book of Acts. And, and so therefore that means everybody can prophesy because God's answering Moses' prayer. But notice, I showed you the clear text. Not all are prophets. And that is said in the context of God, the Holy Spirit, giving different gifts, not the same. Which, by the way, is the reason why when the Pentecostals tell you that everybody can speak in tongues, the uh, 1 Corinthians 12 rules that totally out. Totally. Because not all speak in tongues either. So when they tell you, oh, the, the sure sign that you have the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is it, it's evidenced by speaking in tongues. No, uh uh 1 Corinthians 12 basically says, do all possess gifts of healing? No. And then here, here's the important phrase, may pontes glossis, do all speak in tongues? No, they don't. So, yeah, not all speak in tongues? Nope. And not all prophesy. And this is in the context of God gifting different gifts. So notice what he's doing here. He's going to off-topic texts, and he's avoiding the clearest passage because the clearest passage says the exact opposite of what it is that he's saying. This is deceitfulness, like, you know, of, of a rank that is up there in the demonic. Number one, all can prophesy. No. All can prophesy. Look, look at verse 29. No, not all are prophets. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 12 says. God has appointed in the church apostles, prophets, and th- teachers and miracles. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. May pontes prophetai. No. Not all are prophets. Again, he's straight up saying the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Of Numbers 11. Moses said, oh, that all, all, oh, I, w- I wish, I pray that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, all of them, all of God's people. 
Wouldn't it be great if God put his spirit on all of his people? Because when God's spirit came on them, what did they do? They prophesied. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is when the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on, what's that word? All flesh. Yes, God pours out his spirit on all flesh. But Acts 2 does not say, and that all your sons and daughters will prophesy. No, the Spirit is given to all. But 1 Corinthians 12 makes it clear that not all prophesy. Your sons and your daughters. Okay, that's everybody. You're one or the other. You're either a son or you're a daughter. Shall prophesy. Yeah, boy, again, totally avoiding the clear passage. 1 Corinthians 12 is totally the governing passage. Not all are prophets. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants, servants who are men, and my maid servants, servants who are women, again, let me explain, that's everybody. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, if you're over there or save that as a place. Now watch this. I mean, this is so deceitful. I mean, again, there's no way that this is an accident. He, the only way he could twist this text this way is if he intentionally set out to deceive these people. I'm not making that up. Watch this. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy. There it is right there in the Bible. You can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and that all may be encouraged. All Now, so... 1 Corinthians 14, 31, there it is. You can all prophesy. Uh-uh, no, no, no. See, 1 Corinthians 12 just said, not all are prophets. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14? Well, when we take a look at what's going on in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, in context, wow, wait till you see what he's doing. Um, so we're going to apply three rules again, uh, context, context, context. So what then, verse 26, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up or for edification. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn and let someone interpret. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them be, keep silent in church and speak to himself in God. That's right. Uh, a whole bunch of people all speaking in tongues at the same time, forbidden by 1 Corinthians 14. Somebody speaking alone in tongues in church without an interpreter, forbidden by God's word. Yeah, it's literally prohibited. And then watch this. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. Yeah. Sorry, but 1 Corinthians 14.31 doesn't say you can all prophesy. It's you can prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. This is not a blanket statement that everybody can prophesy. This is in the context of orderliness, two, three prophets at the most, one at a time, and you can all prophesy one by one. Uh Uh-huh. 
man, this guy is intentionally twisting the scriptures. This is he's saying the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Again, this cannot be an accident. He is doing this on purpose. All can prophesy. And the look of the words, you can. You can. So, so God says you can prophesy. Now, here's what you need to think about. We're talking about hearing God. So prophecy is giving a message from God to someone. So doesn't it make sense that if you can all prophesy? Again, twisting 1 Corinthians 14, 31. Literally ripping it out of its context and making it say the exact opposite of what God, the Holy Spirit, had Paul write in 1 Corinthians 12. Then you can all hear God. Yeah, wow. You get the idea. Like I said, this is so bad of a twisting of Scripture, it cannot be an accident. He has to have intentionally set out to figure out how to twist the Bible to make it say the exact opposite of what it does say. And by the way, this is par for Robert Morris's course. His uh, his book, The Blessed Life, if you've read that and believe that your money is going to be devoured and destroyed if you don't give the absolute first fruits of your, uh, of your money to the church, um, yeah, that whole blessed life thing, straight up a twisting of scripture. I'll put a link down in the description to an episode of Fighting for the Faith where I debunk the major premise and major portions of the teaching of the book, The Blessed Life, Robert Morris is a wolf, and, and his sheep's clothing is so threadbare that, I mean, he barely even makes an attempt to look like he's got sheep's clothing at all. This is a man that must be avoided like the plague. He is a deceiver. He is money-grubbing like you wouldn't believe. And not only that, he mishandles money like like in criminal fashion, you know, Avoid this man at all costs. Do not believe anything he says. And if your church has invited him to come teach the blessed life or do a video series on your church on the blessed life about how, you know about the important principles of tithing and stuff like that, don't participate. You've got to run. It's this guy is that dangerous. And uh, you know, like I said, he cannot be twisting scripture this badly unless he was doing it on purpose. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to end off the week with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Charmley and a sermon from his Earnestly Contending series. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's It's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! some more coming but let's do this right Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Bethel Evangelical Free Church, Hanley, Stokon, Trent, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley presiding. This is the number three sermon in the series titled Earnestly Contending. Earnestly Contending. And the sermon we will be listening to is titled Worth Fighting For. Worth Fighting For. And the sermon itself is based upon Jude verse 3. And I assure you, it'll be a great resource for you. So let's go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Pastor Gerbasic, Nicholas Edward Charmley, and his exegesis of Jude verse 3. 
Our scripture reading this evening is taken from the epistle of Jude. Jude's epistle is a relatively short epistle. It's one of the the few New Testament books that is a single chapter that no one ever saw fit to divide it up. And it's very similar in the sort of content to Second Peter. Both are dealing with a situation where you have false teachers getting into the church and causing trouble. So Jude, Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness, and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, the gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. They have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. 
but you, beloved. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Saviour who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Now as we go through this epistle, we have reached verse 3. Verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered, for, delivered to the saints. There are things that are worth fighting for. And it is a terrible situation when people imagine there is nothing that is worth fighting for. We live in a a very cynical age when people, or most people, seem to be of the opinion there is very little that is worth fighting for. And yet Jude tells us that there is this faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, that is not only worth fighting for, but is worth fighting, contending earnestly for. What is worth fighting for is the truth. The truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Now Jude here is writing this epistle and he talks of Christianity in using two main words here. First of all, our common salvation and secondly, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And these two words for Jude sum up Christianity. First of all, the common salvation, our common salvation, sums up the Christian life, Christian experience. The Christian is one who is saved, is being saved, and shall be saved in the great day. Secondly, Christianity has an actual doctrinal content, the Faith, And first you have this point, our common salvation. Now there are some writers, some commentators who look at this and they say that this seems to suggest that Jude 
was planning to write something and then he gets this news. This news that these Christians, and he simply says, those who were called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. So it seems to be actually all Christians that he was seeking to write, perhaps a, a circular letter, something that would go be sent to all the different churches, pass around the churches, even as, of course, the book has passed around the churches from that day to this, talking about our common salvation, that he wanted to speak about the great realities of Christian experience. But then this news comes to him about these false teachers who are worming their way in, and... The character of what he planned to write is not what the Holy Spirit then constrained him to write. We may say in that case that it is that man proposes and God disposes. Jude had his idea, but God had his. And Jude says, I found it necessary And the idea, it's a very strong word, it really means that he found that he was constrained, that there was this force put upon him. He had to do this. He had no choice in the matter, so he felt he was constrained. But he does write according to our common salvation. He does write about this common salvation. What it is like, he tells us, of course, in verse 25, that salvation comes from God. God is our saviour. And we find in the New Testament epistles that again and again, this idea of salvation is fundamental to Christianity. First of all, Romans 1.16, Paul, speaking about his desire to preach the gospel, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The Christian is one who is saved. And that, of course, means that there is something to be saved from. There is the condemnation, the judgment of God, to be saved from. That Christ Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Christianity is a matter of salvation. It's not a matter of life improvement. It's not a matter of self-help or making yourself a better person. It is a matter of salvation, life or death. But there is, as the old writers put it, there is a hell to be escaped and a heaven to be gained. And salvation is something that is a matter of confession. So Romans 10.10, with the heart one believes 
unto righteousness. So, so there is faith, trust, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's not to say that without a confession there is no salvation in the sense that you must confess to be saved. But that salvation will always lead to confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation. And this salvation then is summed up. Or is laid out in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 from verse 29. For whom he, that is God, foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This has been referred to as the golden chain of salvation. That is to say that as with any chain like this one, the links are all joined together, and if you break one, you break the whole thing. Here is a golden chain, a chain that God himself has established. And you see, who is the one who is doing all the things here? Whom he foreknew. Now again, it's important to emphasize whom he foreknew. That is to say, the foreknowledge is not of acts, but of persons. I remember when I was a student, I was preaching at a little church in, in Kent, and a woman in the congregation came to me and said, uh, now I'd been preaching from Romans 8, and said, what can we do with all this Calvinism, she said. Isn't it so clear whom he foreknew? That means salvation is dependent on God foreknowing that we will believe. But that's not what it means at all. Whom he foreknew. It is a knowledge of persons, not of acts. Now if I say of a person, well I know so and so. I'm not saying I know their behaviour. I'm saying that I have a certain personal relationship with them. And here is this idea that God establishes his relationship with his people before they exist. As the hymn writer puts it, Father, twas thy love which knew us, earth's foundation long before. That same love to Jesus drew us. And you see, he puts his love on certain persons. That God's love isn't a matter of him saying, well, whoever believes, and I'll leave it up to them, I will save them. But he says, I will save so and so and such and such. There's a, a specific element to God's election of grace. And then whom he foreknew that election, he also predestined. Now, Sometimes predestination and election are spoken of as though they are the same thing. It's more accurate to say they're two sides of the same coin. Because to predestine means, as the word suggests, to beforehand determine their destination. 
to determine where they will go. So there is an election, a choice, that is a choice that these persons will end up, their destination will be to be with God forever. It's the sort of thing that, there's the same issue that Paul writes to, writes of when he write, writes the Ephesians, when he says that Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So here again we have this idea of the election of grace, that is God chooses sinners out of the great lump of damned humanity and chooses to save certain sinners and whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son the fullness of salvation is this being conformed to the image of his son in Ephesians Adoption as sons, in other words, not only is it there the, the legal aspect, the relational aspect, but there's a being conformed, made fit. Whom he predestined, these he also called. Now we come forward in time, the eternal election of God comes into action, as it were, when God calls by grace. And it is not a, a mere invitation in the sense that you might send an invitation saying, will you or won't you? The other day I was going past a, a church, I won't say what it was, but the church, it wasn't in this city, had a notice board outside as we do and said, you have a friend request from Jesus in Facebook business, um, accept or decline. That is precisely not what God does. As one of the hymn writers puts it, the appointed time rolls on and pays not to propose, but call by grace to change the heart, convert the will, and turn the feet to Zion's hill. In other words, his calling is effectual. That he calls... And the call is never ignored when it comes to God's elect. The chain cannot be broken. Whom he called, these he also justified, brought into that right relationship with him. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now this is an example of what's known as the prophetic perfect. That is to say you have something that is spoken of as though it's already happened when it hasn't because it's absolutely certain that it will happen. That is to say that the believer, the Christian, who has been called by grace will certainly persevere unto the end because we are kept by the power of God unto salvation. That is to say it's not a matter of 
our work bringing us to the end, but that it is he who has begun a good work in you shall complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. And so we have here this point that this salvation goes on in this golden chain. And it is a present experience, but also something to which we look forward. There is both the now and the not yet. And it is entirely through faith, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And there is the fullness of salvation to be enjoyed on the day of resurrection, when the body shall be fully saved, delivered from all the effects of the fall. Salvation is the present experience of the Christian. And this common salvation is common. That is, every Christian has it. There is only one type of Christian. There are not different levels of Christian, different kinds of Christian. There are different, indeed, experiences between God's people. We cannot fit all of God's people into one stereotyped experience. And the attempt to do so, which has happened and does happen in churches, that that is a very dangerous thing to say, well, every Christian has to go through this particular experience. There are some who take, for example, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and you have there in that book, there's that long period between the pilgrim being called, convicted of his sin, and the time when the burden rolls off his back. And that, of course, is reflecting Bunyan's experience that he had a long time of conviction of sin before he was assured of salvation. But not every Christian has that. And to say, well, everyone has to have the same experience, well, it makes no sense. It's rather like the story that's told of Procrustes in Greek mythology in his bed. And Procrustes had a bed that he had his travellers would... He said to, to travellers, you lie on the bed... And if they were too, too short for the bed, he'd stretch them on a rack. And if they were too long for the bed, he would lop bits off of them to fit them to the bed. We don't do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We say that we have different experiences, different ways. And of course, Bunyan, his Pilgrim's Progress, recognises that if you read the book, you find there are various different Christians in the book, both part one and part two, who have different experiences of how they became Christians. But there is the one. The one common salvation. And then there is the one faith. The faith that was once for all. Delivered to the saints. And this is what is worth fighting for. 
It is the faith. That is to say there is a definite content to Christianity. That Christianity is not just a name that can be attached to all kinds of systems and ideas. And sadly, that's what we find has been done in many cases today. There are many people who will say that they are Christians who deny absolutely fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. Now, this church, we are part of the FIEC, and we have in the foyer the FIEC doctrinal basis, what we believe. And that is a summary of the absolute minimum of the evangelical faith. The absolute minimum. There's a lot more to the evangelical faith than that. It's rather like the the old creeds and confessions. And they are marvellous things to study, the creeds and confessions. Thomas Chalmers, the great Scottish evangelical leader of the first half of the 19th century spoke of creeds and confessions. He said they are landmarks of old heresies. If it wasn't for the heresies, they wouldn't have been needed. Their summaries have been drawn up because people have contended not for the faith, but against the faith. You look at, sadly, all too many churches in this country and you will find in pulpit after pulpit denial of fundamentals of the faith. Denying any part of the faith is a bad thing but denying the fundamental points is deadly. The Apostle Paul sums up his gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, reading from verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he says that's the Gospel. The Gospel is, first of all, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now that means that the death of Christ... The fact that he died for our sins and that the scriptures, by which, of course, Paul at this point means the Old Testament scriptures, that these are fundamentals. That he was buried and the resurrection of Christ is a fundamental. So that if you were to go into a church, and sadly going to far too many in this country on Easter Sunday, and hear the minister declare that the resurrection is spiritual and not physical, then what you have is a heretic, a false teacher, someone who denies the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it is the the fundamentals of the faith are straightforward. The Jews had one great fundamental confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that the Mormons, when they say there are God's many and Lord's many, are not Christians. 
And they will, if you say that to them, many Mormons will be most upset and they will be most offended and say, well, how dare you say I'm not a Christian? And I had one say that to me once and I said to him, Sir, one of us is a Christian and the other is not. Because I am confessing there is one God and beside him there is no other. You are saying that there are God's many and Lord's many. One of us must be wrong. And that means that one of us is a Christian and the other one is not. Now, the Holy Scriptures, and indeed the Book of Mormon, say there is only one God. Now, therefore, where are your gods many and lords many? Of course, that is the great weakness of the Mormons, is that the, the Book of Mormon was never revised by Joseph Smith to reflect the fact that he later changed his mind from the idea there's only one God and decided there were many gods. But you see, the Holy Scriptures are very, very clear. There is but one God and there is no other. So that there is this absolutely plain content to the faith. That there are there are some matters, of course, that we that Christians disagree on. One of the most obvious ones is the question of baptism. We are all agreed that a new convert is to be baptized. One who has never received baptism, who becomes a Christian, is to be baptized. But there is a disagreement between those who believe that believers and their children should be baptized and those who think that only believers should be baptized on a profession of faith. And we do not put anyone out of the church for saying that. It is a disagreement between brethren. This is not a fundamental point. But when it comes to the question of who God is, who Christ is, when it comes to the fundamental point of the second coming, again, there are differences about certain details, but we confess that Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The reality of the second advent is something that must be affirmed again and again. In Second Peter, the Apostle Peter condemns those who denied the second coming. So Second Peter 3, reading from verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Incidentally, you notice that it's towards us, that is, towards his people. And it's the idea that there is a, a definite number of God's elect whom he will bring in. And that requires the second coming to be when God has planned it to be and not before. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, and so on. 
And the coming, the, the visible, physical, glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. As the angels said on the, the day of the ascension. Why do you stand looking into heaven, you men of Galilee? This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And again, this is a fundamental. And this faith has an, a definite content. And that's why it's possible for people to sit down and give a summary, a creed, a confession, a statement of faith. And if you look at the, the historic Reformed confessions, you look at the historic creeds, you look at the, the more recent statements of faith, such as the FIEC statement, and you will see that they are in fundamental agreement as to the core of the faith. And they are all drawing upon the scriptures. And this is something that has a final character to it. You note, he says, it was once for all delivered to the saints. Nothing is to be added to it. Nothing is to be taken away. God is not going to issue a revision, a second edition, as it, as it were. Instead, we are called to be as Titus was, is told that a, a minister of the church must be, Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. That you've got a, the content that's handed to the overseer, to the elder, that the elder then passes on, and that has a definite content. It's not to be added to. And all that God has given us, all that God has spoken is unto us, is in the Holy Scriptures. We don't need to go looking for revelation anywhere else. Because the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. There is a finality to it. Jesus Christ is God's last word. As one has summed up the message of the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, reading from verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You can't get much more final than that. A finished work and a finished word. He has spoken. And so this is what's worth fighting for. The common salvation. The once for all delivered faith. The truth as it is in Christ. May God inspire in us more and more a love of this truth. That we know more and more the richness of his salvation. That we may indeed contend earnestly 
for these things, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.